Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. If you all want to be a part of that, that's available for you. You can uh, meet our leaders there in uh, the back room there. Uh, You just make your way uh, to to them. Uh, Everyone else, as I mentioned, if you'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 6, and we will be in verses 9 through 12 this morning as we continue our way uh, through this book. Uh, In fact, uh, I'm going to back up a little bit and read, uh, reread our passage from last week to read into 9 through 12. I just want to be sure we're reminded of what we covered last week, and then we will focus in on, on verses 9 through 12, which will be the passage for this morning. So as we do every week, let me read our passage for us. Uh, I'll read all the way from 1 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 6, and then we'll take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are thankful for your patience and mercy toward us, your undeserving people. Father, it's a gift. It's a gift from you to be able to gather here this morning under the truth of your word, to be able to sing praises to you and to uh, encourage one another through song. It's a privilege to be able to pray together as your people, to come under the truth of your word together 
as your people. And these are all good gifts from you that we do not deserve, but we're all bought by Jesus on the cross in our place. And so, Father, we are just expressing and communicating to you this morning that our only hope, our only confidence is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful that because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that you have sent your spirit to dwell in all who trust in Christ. And so we are thankful that this morning you're, we, we can have confidence that your spirit is at work in us and among us through the proclamation of your word. And Father, we need your help. We need the power of your spirit to be at work within us for a passage like this where we need to feel the weight of the warning and yet the hope of the encouragement that the author of Hebrews gives us here. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to balance these things well. And I, I pray that the warning that is given to us, as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 6, would drive us to obedience, would drive us toward Jesus. And I pray that that's exactly what we would hear from your word this morning. And so, Father, we plead with you for your help, that you would guard us all from being led astray, that uh, Father, I pray that you would guard my lips and my mind, allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word. And I pray that it would be for the good of, the peop for, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, summer is uh, drawing uh, very close to an end, uh, but throughout the summer, uh, we would uh, take the kids to the pool. Our kids enjoy going to the pool. I'm sure your kids enjoy going to the pool. I enjoy going to the pool because they enjoy me going with them. I would not choose to go on my own. In fact, I have a strict temperature policy. I don't care how much they beg me. If the water's below a certain temperature, I don't get in. And they just accept that, right? That's, that's a privilege that I've earned as a parent who now has older children who can watch the younger children. I put my time in. And now I can sit back in the chair and they can enjoy the pool on their own. But every time we go to the pool, something I find interesting is to, to watch the lifeguards and to watch the interaction between the people in the pool and the lifeguards sitting on their mighty elevated thrones of tyrant authoritarianism, right? They must be obeyed at all times without question, regardless of how contradictory or nonsensical some of their rules may be, at least it feels that way. Uh, just kidding, I'm thankful for lifeguards. They, they keep us safe, right? That's ultimately their job. But if they see someone doing something that they think is going to put that person in danger or put someone else in danger, well, what is it that they do, right? I think most of you are familiar with the pool and how it works, but if they, if they see someone doing something dangerous, they can't leave their throne, right? They have to get their attention some other way. And so inevitably, the only recourse is the thing they have hanging around their neck and they blow their whistle, right? And here's the fascinating thing that happens at the pool. Inevitably, every time a lifeguard blows their whistle, every single head turns and looks at the lifeguard, right? every head, though typically except the one person who they're actually trying to get the attention of, right? They keep doing the terrible thing they're doing, and everybody else is like fixated on them. And for a split second, right, for a split second, everybody in the pool thinks they've done something wrong. 
Because remember, they're authoritarian tyrants, and so you never know. No, just kidding. But everybody looks, right? Is it me? Is it me? But that split-second reaction, is it me, quickly, very, very quickly changes to, ooh, who's getting it this time? Right? And you look around. Who's getting called out this time? You know it's not you. Is it, is it that person again? Is it that person again? Everybody wants to know who is it that's being embarrassed and called out by the whistle. Right? Who's going to get kicked out of the pool today? It's not me. Who's it going to be? Now, that's a lighthearted analogy. But here's the reality. That's often how we respond to the warning passages of Scripture. Right, for a split second, we, we feel the weight of it. We think, could it be about me? But typically, we make the mistake of quickly turning away from it being about us. And we think of all the other people it must be for. Because surely, it's not for me. But here's the weight we need to fill this morning. The warning passages in God's Word, particularly in Hebrews, as we've seen many already and we will see a few more, they are intended for you and me. And it's a mistake to dismiss them and to move on from them. We need to hear the warning and respond to the warning. Right? That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to do. Right? There, there are a couple of mistakes we can make when we hear the warnings of Scripture, like we read earlier in chapter 6, to say, look, this is a serious thing. If you reject Christ, what could ultimately happen to you? It's a serious and it's a weighty thing. And some people respond by saying, well, it's not about me, so I don't need to worry about it. Others respond by becoming so... Uh, almost overwhelmed with the possibility that it's about them and they lose assurance of their salvation and they spiral into uh, uh, just a disconnect with God and it actually pushes them away from him. And, and that's not what the author desires either. What, what God desires with warning passages is to draw us closer to Christ, to drive us to the feet of Jesus. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews wants for us this morning, right? After, after reading such a warning, the inevitable question is, how close am I to falling into this danger? How close am I for this being true about me? Well, the author of Hebrews wants to give us tools and answers to that question of how we ought to respond to such a warning and how we ought to evaluate our lives. Because you see, here's, here's the other danger, and this is what happens at the pool when the lifeguard blows the whistle, right? Well, it's not about me because what I'm doing is not near as bad as what that other person is doing, so it must be about them. And we fall into this dangerous area of holiness by comparison. The warning's not for me because I'm doing better than the person who lives next to me or my coworker or my family member, but that's not at all the answer that God gives to us of how we ought to respond to a warning like this. Instead, in verses 9 through 12, the author of Hebrews gives us four ways we ought to respond to these kinds of warnings from God. 
So I just want to work through those four responses with you one at a time in verses 9 through 12. But let me tell you what they are, and then we'll work our way through them one at a time. Here are the, the four ways we ought to respond. Number one, we must remember what belongs to salvation. Remember what belongs to salvation. Number two, trust that God sees the fruit of your faith. Trust that God sees the fruit of your faith. Three, always keep the end of your life in view. Always keep the end of your life in view. And number four, look to the faithful endurance of other saints. So let's work through these one at a time. First, remember what belongs to salvation. You see there in verse 9, look there with me again. The author says, though we speak in this way. So when he says, though we speak in this way, he's talking about the warning that he just gave in the beginning of chapter 6. Where he's saying there are those people. Now remember, he, he changed his pronouns. He's been talking about we, and he's been talking about you, talking to the Hebrews. But then in chapter 6, verse 4, it changes. And he starts talking about those, those people who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. And, and they've experienced all these things of what it means to be around the people of God. They've, they've seen God at work in the lives of other people. They've, they've been under the teaching of God's word. They've, they've tasted it. They've They've experienced it. They've been around the things of God. These are, it's talking about people who have even been in the church. They've seen the power of God at work. And yet they still reject the gospel that's being proclaimed. And we talked about last week that this group of people is a group of people who are perhaps deceived. And they think they are following Jesus, but they actually never trusted in him to begin with. And so when they, uh, it seems as if they have fallen away. But ultimately what they have done is proven that they never belonged to God to begin with. And so when they reject Christ... They are crucifying him again. They are holding him up to contempt, bringing him to shame because they have rejected the message that they have clearly heard. And because of that, condemnation is sure to come upon them. But the author says there in verse 9, though we speak in this way about those people, Hebrews, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now, it was really important for the author of Hebrews to say this because he had been pretty hard on the Hebrews, right? If you recall at the end of chapter 5, he tells them that you are immature. You ought to be much farther along in your faith than you are. In chapter 5 verse 11 he says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You've become lazy in your hearing, sluggish in your hearing. You've become indifferent to the truths of God's word and because of that you're still drinking milk when you ought to be eating meat. You ought to be teachers by now, he says to them, right? He had harsh things to say to them. 
And then he drops this warning on them. And so you can imagine they are spiraling. They are thinking, is he talking about me? But then he, he brings in on the other side of the warning this good news to them that in fact he feels sure of better things about them, things that belong to salvation. And what he is saying is, even if what I said earlier about you is true, and, and he believes that it is true, that they have become lazy in their faith, they have uh, been stuck in a stage of immaturity when they ought to be progressing. But even though that's true, he says, I'm still sure. I'm still sure of better things about you. Things that belong to salvation. So what are the things that belong to salvation? And what I want to make clear here as well, even before we get into the details of what it seems the author of Hebrews is pointing to when he says the things that belong to salvation, is that that phrase helps us interpret verses 1 through 8, right? In other words, we know that that warning about those who fall away from Christ must not be about people who are actually saved, because when it comes to people who are actually saved, there are better things that belong to actual salvation, right? This is about people who are saved, the better things that belong to salvation. And whatever is in that category, the things that belong to salvation is the opposite of the warnings that he gives to this other group of people. So what is it that he has in mind when he talks about the things that belong to salvation? I think what he means is the rock-solid, unshakable promises of God that come to all who trust in Christ. Those are the better things that belong to salvation. Now, similar to what I said last week when we looked at the security of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, we could... We could spend the rest of this morning looking at passages about the things that belong to salvation. But let me just read two examples to give you perhaps what the author has in mind. One is Romans 8.32, a verse we often quote in this church. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now think on this verse for a moment. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The, Paul in Romans is saying to you and to me that if God was willing to send his son to suffer and die on the cross and take the wrath of God on himself in your place, do you think he's going to hold any good thing back from you? Do you think he's going to do that Open your eyes to trust in Christ and then leave you by the side of the road. No, right? There are better things that belong to salvation because he has given you the most precious gift he possibly could in the life, death, and resurrection of his glorious son. Or there's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. One, again, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, verse 5, 
by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? These are the glorious things that belong to salvation. God himself is keeping in heaven for you an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that will last for all eternity. And not only is he keeping that inheritance safe, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, by God's power, you yourself are being guarded by God through faith. These are the glorious things that belong to salvation. And so what the author wants to make clear is that the things that actually belong to salvation are not threatened by Satan's works. They are not threatened by the possibility of falling away because we are kept secure by God himself. Those are the promises that belong to salvation. And we are to find comfort in those promises. So in other words, the warning passage is not meant to make us doubt the promises of God that he has made to us through his son, Jesus Christ. But that leads us to the next natural question, which is what the warning intends for us to ask. How do we know if the things of salvation belong to us? That's the question, right? Now, the author of Hebrews is convinced He's convinced that the things of salvation belong to the Hebrews. But how do we know it belongs to us? Where should we find that confidence and that hope? And that brings us to the second response to the warning of earlier in chapter 6. We must trust that God sees the fruit of our faith. Trust that God sees the fruit of your faith. So look there with me at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, the key word of verse 10 is that first little three-letter word for. Because, right? He's giving the reason, the ground, the reason why he is confident that better things belong to the Hebrews, the things namely of salvation. So what is the reason he feels sure about that? Well, he tells us in verse 10, what we just read. He, he feels sure of better things that belong to salvation for the Hebrews because God is not unjust so as to overlook the work and the love that they have shown for his name and serving the saints as they still do. Now, I would say that that reason is quite unexpected, right? One would think perhaps the reason would be for God is not unjust so as to overlook the decision you made to follow Jesus, for God is not so unjust as to overlook the faith that you have expressed in Christ. But he doesn't bring up faith explicitly. What he points to is works and love. Now, that reasoning is unexpected, and to be honest, it makes it sound like if we're not careful here that somehow we can work our way into the better things of salvation, right? It, it could sound like it could 
possibly sound like what the author of Hebrews is saying is, well, I'm confident that the better things of salvation belong to you because of the works that you have displayed in your life and the love you've shown for God and the way you care for and serve the saints. I'm confident that the things of salvation belong to you because you've earned them through the works of your life. Now, how do we know that's not, in fact, what he's saying? Well, again, we talked about this last week, but to mention it again, one of the key uh, approaches to interpreting God's word is that we are to allow clear passages to help us interpret less clear passages. Right? You need to remember that when you deal with the Bible, when you study God's word, if you come to a difficult passage that seems like it could be one way or another and you're just not quite sure, think about passages of scripture that speak with clarity to the issue. And so I just want to be really clear this morning that the Bible is unquestionably clear about the fact that we are saved through faith alone by grace alone, not by our works. Again, we can look at numerous places, but here's just two quick ones. <clears throat> First, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, well-known passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation is by faith alone. And Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says explicitly, it is not a result of works. You are not saved based on your works. Crystal clear, unquestionable truth. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4 Verses 2 through 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul is saying in Romans 4 is that if you and I want to be counted as righteous before God, we do not earn righteousness by working for it. We earn righteousness by believing in the righteousness that God provides through the perfect life of Jesus Christ in our place. We are saved by grace alone through faith Alone. It is only through belief in the glorious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we find salvation. So what is it that the author is getting at here with this statement when he says that the reason he is sure that salvation belongs to them is because God won't overlook their work and the love they've shown for his name in serving the saints as they still do. Well, it's important to recognize what question the author of Hebrews is asking and answering. Okay, the, the author of Hebrews is not answering the following question. How are we saved? It's not the question he's answering in verse 10. The question he's answering is, how do we know we're saved? So two different questions. 
How does he know that he can have confidence that the Hebrews are living a life of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ? How does he know the Hebrews have trusted in Christ? Why is he sure? What is the reason why he has confidence that, in fact, they have trusted in Jesus? How does he know? Because of their works and the love that they have shown for his name in serving the saints. In other words, he's saying, we have to look at the fruit of our lives. We must look at the fruit of our lives to see, are we following Jesus? And this makes even more sense when we remember the last two verses from last week's passage. So chapter 6, if you just back up a little bit to verses 7 and 8, this was the conclusion to the warning passage. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop, produces fruit, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, if it lacks fruit, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. In other words, the author of Hebrews is simply being consistent. <laughs> He's saying that the field that produces fruit proves that it's a faithful field, that it is trusted in the Savior. And the field that does not bear fruit is proving that it is worthless, that it is not trusted in the Savior. It is the field that has rejected Christ and its, its end is to be burned. It is to be condemned for all eternity in hell. Right? This is exactly what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, they're going to know you by your fruit. By the fruit of your life. And if Jesus is comfortable saying that, then surely we ought to be comfortable saying that. And it's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It is what God is saying to us in this passage. And what the author is doing is bringing encouragement to these Hebrew saints. Because as I said, he had some harsh words to say to them at the end of chapter 5. But here he's coming around on the other side of the warning and he's saying, look, I know I had some harsh things to say to you. And those things are true. You are struggling right now. You are more immature than you ought to be. You're not progressing like you should be. But listen, Hebrews, I want you to hear this. God sees and knows the fruit of your life. He sees it and he knows it. And he wants, the author of Hebrews wants them to know that he sees it and that he knows it. That even in the midst of their spiritual struggles, God's eyes are on them and he sees the fruit of their labors. <clears throat> God's word. All these things God speaks, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, God says here in Isaiah 66, he has made all things, right? The vastness of the universe, right? This new telescope was just sent out, the James Webb telescope, and it's seeing galaxies that we've never seen before. It is unthinkable how vast and immeasurable the universe is. And Isaiah 66 says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. And so 
There are millions of things that could, billions of things that could catch the attention of God's eye, the beauty that he has created in the universe. And yet what he says in Isaiah 66 is that his eyes are drawn to those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. He sees and knows the fruits of the saints. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to them, look, he, he sees and he knows what you are doing. And look, I love the way verse 10 is worded. He sees your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Do you hear that? Their service of the saints, right? The work that they are doing for one another, the way in which they are serving one another is motivated by and driven by a love for the name of Jesus Christ. For the glory and honor of Jesus. That's what drives their love for each other. Right? It's exactly what Jesus told us in John 13, 35. By this all people will know you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. In other words, if you love the name of Jesus, if you want to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. If you want Jesus' name to be seen as worthy as it ought to be seen, then one way we must do that is by working at serving one another in this church. Those are not two separate realities. You can't claim to love the name of Jesus Christ and hate his people. You can't claim to love Jesus and hate the church over which he is the head. You can't love the name of Jesus and refuse to serve the saints. You can't love Jesus and pretend that you can be an independent Christian all out on your own and I don't need that organized religion nonsense. No, no, God has called us that if we're going to love Jesus, we need to commit ourselves to a local church where we can love the saints well, where we can serve the saints effectively. That is the fruit of the gospel that ought to be manifested in our lives, even if it comes at great cost. And we're going to dive much deeper into this passage when we get there later in Hebrews chapter 10. But I think it's important to bring this up now, that when the author of Hebrews says that he's, God sees their love and how they're serving the saints, it's important for you to know the weight that rests behind that phrase, serve the saints. Because this is what it meant for the Hebrews to serve the saints. We find it in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So when the author of Hebrews says that the Hebrew people, that God has seen the fruit of their faith, that he had seen the love for his name that had driven them to serve the saints, he doesn't mean in simple, ordinary ways. He means in extraordinary, supernatural ways. 
that they were willing to be associated with those who had been in prison, even if it meant that their public visitation of those in, pr in prison led to they themselves having their property plundered, they were still willing to serve the saints. Why? Because they loved the name of Jesus. And he says to them, God sees it and God knows it. Here's the author's main point in verse 10. There are times when it's appropriate to remind ourselves that the fruit of our lives demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. Now look, ultimately, our confidence in our salvation must be found in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Our confidence, our confidence is not found in our works. But yet at the very same time, the author of Hebrews is saying we can find encouragement if we reflect on how our lives have been transformed by the truth of the gospel. Are you a different person than you used to be? Has he changed you? Is there fruit present in your life? And look, there are going to be times when we don't even see the fruit in our life, that we forget about the fruit of our life, and we forget about all the good things that God has accomplished for us that, that prove that we are, in fact, being faithful to follow him. And the encouragement that the author of Hebrews is giving to us is even when you forget it, God sees it, and God knows it. And listen, this is why we need the church. It's why we need the church, because we can deceive ourselves in two different directions. Now, of course, one way we can deceive ourselves is to think that we're following Jesus when we really aren't. And we need the church to hold us accountable and say to us, I don't see fruit in your life. I love you, and, and I, I want you to know Jesus, but I don't see the evidence right now, right? We need to have that kind of love. But there's another kind of love we need to have. Because there are struggling saints who struggle with doubt, who struggle with assurance. And you cannot begin to imagine how encouraging it is to a brother and sister in Christ just for you to walk up to them and say to them, look, I, I want you to know that I see the fruitfulness of your faith in Christ manifested in your life. You are such a generous person. And I know that that's evidence of your faith in Jesus. Or we say to them, look, I, brother, sister, I just want you to know that your constant spirit of encouragement is clear evidence of God's work in your heart. And I am so thankful for you and thankful for your faithfulness. Sister, your, your humility, the humble way you approach life and conversations and uh, uh, just decision-making is such profound evidence of God's work in your heart. And I, I'm thankful for you. Right? We need to say those things to each other because it is inevitably true that we often don't see the fruit that our lives are producing. And we need others to tell us. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing for his audience here. He's saying to them, look, I had harsh words for you, but I want you to know, I see the fruit of your life. I know you're following Jesus. Keep plugging along, right? Trust that God sees the fruit of your life.
All right, so, so we need to remember the things that belong to salvation. We need to trust that God sees the fruit of our life. Number three way we need to respond to warnings like this, we always must keep the end of our life in view. Now, I know that may seem like a strange truth, but I think you'll see that it's exactly what verse 11 is saying to us. Verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Let's look there again at it. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Well, what earnestness? What effort is he talking about? Well, I think he's referring to the verse before, right? The hard work they, they put into serving the saints and to loving them well. He says, you need to put in that same kind of effort, that same kind of earnestness to be sure that you hang on to the full assurance of hope until the very last days of your life. To put it simply, the author is saying to us that we must work by God's grace at maintaining our assurance of hope in the gospel to the very last days of our life. Remember, Jesus told us that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saving faith is enduring faith. And enduring faith is saving faith. And I want you to see the connection between verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Right? The reason he wants them to put great effort into having full assurance of hope until the end is so that they may not be sluggish. Now that word sluggish is a similar word to what Paul used earlier, or sorry, the author of Hebrews used earlier in verse 11 when he said they had become dull of hearing, sluggish in hearing, lazy in hearing. He's saying, look, I don't want you to be that way anymore. And one of the antidotes to sluggishness is to keep the end of your life in view. To work at being sure that you have the full assurance of hope until the end of your life. I know it may seem morbid, but the reality is that the author of Hebrews, that God himself is calling us to think about our last days. To have a desire to be sure that on our last day, when we draw our last breath, our eyes are still fixed on Jesus. And he says when we think about our lives in that way, it will drive us to avoid sluggishness and laziness in our walk with Jesus. Right? It's, it's not much different than someone who has the desire to, to get in shape, right? They, they maybe want to lose some weight. They, uh, they, they're having health issues, perhaps, and so there's things they need to do that the doctor says they need to exercise a little more. They need to change their diet, right? They have this end goal in mind. This is where they need to get to, and this is what needs to happen. Their blood pressure needs to get to this, or their weight needs to get to that goal, or whatever it may be. And they keep the end in view, and that end drives their daily decisions, because listen, when you're going after a goal like that, you're not going to see a difference in a day. Right? If the doctor says you need to lose 10 pounds, then you can go out and do wind sprints for four hours this afternoon. And it is not going to get you to that goal. 
You can, you can run for the rest of the day and you might lose some water weight, but it's going to come back on. Now, what do you have to do? You have to keep the end in view and work every single day. That's what he's calling us to in our walk with Jesus. That if you want to be trusting in Jesus, when you draw your last breath, then it requires the daily disciplines of what are called the ordinary means of grace. Of spending time in his word, of prayer, of scripture memorization, of fellowship with the saints, all of that, right? This day-to-day -day process. Look, when you sit down to read your Bible tomorrow morning, you're not going to be a radically different person by tomorrow afternoon. But if you read your Bible every morning for the next six months, I promise you're going to be a different person. It will change you. And he says to us, if you consistently keep the desire to have your full assurance of hope to your very last day, then it will drive your daily decisions to not be lazy and sluggish in the faith. So the way we respond to the warnings of Scripture is not to dismiss them. It's to say, let's be sure that's not me. Let's be sure that on the last breath that I draw, I'm still trusting in Jesus. And let that motivate us by God's grace to us to work hard at following Jesus and to run hard after him. Look, it's why the mission statement of this church that Chris mentioned earlier ends with that we may present all mature in Christ. That's our goal, is that every person in this room on your last day will still be trusting in Jesus. That the earlier morning of chapter 6 will not be about you, but instead verses 9 through 12 will be true of your life. And one of the ways we do that is to constantly think about the end of our own lives and our need to have enduring faith to the last day. And then let's just conclude with this final response to the warnings of God's word. Number four, look to the faithful endurance of other saints. You see that there, verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but instead, instead of being sluggish, you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a command from God to follow faithful saints. Now he's going to pick this theme back up in chapter 11, so we're not going to dive into that now, but just know that that's exactly the theme that's being picked up in chapter 11, one of the most famous passages in Hebrews, and uh, surely in Hebrews and perhaps in the whole Bible, this hall of faith of those who endured faithfully to the very end, even at the cost of great suffering, they endured to the very end. We ought to look at their lives and we ought to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's going to talk about that in chapter 11. And then he's going to conclude chapter 11 with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning so great a cloud of faithful saints who have gone before us, let us also, like them, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? This is the call to imitate the saints who have gone before us. That we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews also picks up this theme in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, when he says to us, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That we ought to have, and if ever our faith who are worthy of following whose faith is worthy of imitating, and if ever our faith is not worthy of imitating, then you need to go find a different church. Now listen, I'm not perfect. The elders are not perfect. Our faith is not perfect. But we ought to be an example, right? That's the challenge to us as elders, that we ought to be an example to you. But it's also a call to you to imitate the faith, to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, if we're going to endure and not fall victim to the outcome of uh, the warning that the author gives us, then we need to see the faithful examples of the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints. We need to see the faithful example of, of the leaders that God has given us. And we need to see the example of faithful saints throughout church history. Listen, that's why learning church history is so important. There are other reasons, but that is one reason. We need to know the faithful endurance of saints who have gone before us to motivate us to walk in their footsteps, to imitate their faith. Look, I look forward to the day as we launch this new church together that down the road we're going to plan to, to bring back Sunday morning classes before service. And most assuredly, one of those classes is going to be church history. And we're going to walk through what we can learn from God's story, from the history of the church, because we need to see the faithful saints that have gone before us. And I just want to encourage each of you, if you have not made this a habit of your life, to read a biography of a faithful saint, at least one, if not more, if not two or more a year. You need to find a biography of a faithful saint who has gone on, who has shown endurance and faithfulness in the midst of suffering and hardship and have sustained their faith to the very end. It will change you if you make that a goal and priority of your life. And if you want some recommendations, email me. I will send you a list of great biographies of faithful saints who have gone before us. You need to know about faithful men and women, people like Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards and Lottie Moon, David Brainerd and Adoniram Judson and on and on and on. You need to read their stories, right? That's one way that we obey verse 12, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We cannot imitate them if we don't know about them. And even beyond those heroes of the faith, there are heroes of the faith that you don't know the name of, that I don't know the name of, but you know, right? You may not know the ones I know. I may not know the ones you know, but you've seen faithful saints in your own life who have gone before you. Look to their lives, the author of Hebrews says to us, and imitate them. You see, the warnings of Scripture are meant to drive us to Jesus, not away from him. 
And so when we read a weighty warning like we read in chapter 6, our response ought to be, Father, remind me of your promises that belong to salvation. Give me confidence in the finished work of Christ that stands in my place, that you have promised to keep me to the very end, to the very last day. Father, help me remember how you have changed my life, how there is fruit in my life, even though I may struggle with doubt from time to time. I'm a different person than I used to be. Father, help me to evaluate my life. Help me to see the fruit that you have granted me in my life. Also, Father, Father, help us to endure to the very end. Help us to, to, to have a desire to be faithful to the very last day of our life. And let that desire drive us to our hard work, to avoid laziness and sluggishness in the faith. And finally, let us respond to these warnings by saying, I want to find people who made it faithfully to the end. What is it they did with their lives? And Father, help me follow their faithfulness. That's how we respond to the warnings of God's word. Allow it to drive you to the feet of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are indeed thankful. God, pray that we would respond rightly, that every person in this room would respond in these ways uh, to the warning of chapter six. And Father, let us, by your grace, have clarity of sight to be honest with our lives that as we look to the fruit of our lives, if they are absent from our life, if our life lacks the fruit of the gospel, the Father, I pray that we would see it and that it would drive us to repentance and faith in Christ. But Father, I pray that all of these responses, that you would use them in our life individually and corporately as your people to drive us toward Jesus, to help us run this race with endurance that you have set before us, for us not to be sluggish, but to press on toward maturity for the glory of your name. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish all of these things in the life of this church as we establish who we want to be. I pray that these very things would be true of this group of people, that, so that on our last days, we will still be singing your praises with full confidence and hope in the truth of your gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.